it's good to be back. It is good to be back. I love coming here with you guys. It's always a joy. And I think, uh, unfortunately, this is my last time here this summer. But I don't think it will be my last time here <laughs> just for the summer. Next time you see me, it may be a little chillier outside. But, but I really do enjoy uh, all of you. And uh, my wife and my mother are here. My wife is back there. And my mother and my, my two daughters are upstairs probably tearing everything up right now. And so let's pray in tongues for the people that are. Yes, yes. There's a portion of scripture that I want to present to you guys in the book of 1 John. 1 John, a couple of verses. 1 John chapter 5. Yes, I am dressed down a little bit more. So I think I'm still a little bit away, ways away from, you know, as casual as you guys are. But, but I don't look like I'm going to prom today. So, all right, feeling good about that. All right. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 14. I'm just going to read verses 14 and 15. The Apostle John writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of them. I'm going to read these two verses one more time. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Pray with me for just a moment. Lord, open our ears, open our eyes. I pray that you would make our minds alert and our hearts receptive. We believe that the flower fades and the grass withers, but it's your word that stands forever. So please, Lord, teach us, instruct us, challenge us. Ultimately, our desire is to conform to the image of Jesus Christ day by day. So would you, by the power of your spirit, Use this word to make us new. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, of course, this is um, the Apostle John that's writing this portion of Scripture. He's in his old age as he's writing this. And he is most likely, we're not sure, but he's most likely writing to the same churches that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, then you know that that same author wrote it, and he addressed some specific churches, and there's a good chance that he's writing this to those churches as well. And these churches that he's writing to, they're, they're having a, a, a bit of a, a, a tough time, some difficulties. Um, they are struggling with some sin. There's, there's some, some sinful behavior within their midst, within the community. And so, you know, when, when, when we struggle with sin, as we all do, you know that that tends to kind of shake our confidence, our confidence in our salvation, our confidence in God, right? When we 
experience personal sinfulness, then we give room for the enemy to, to cause us to question ourselves and doubt ourselves and doubt our connection and closeness to God. So, so this was happening with some of these churches that the Apostle John is writing to. There's some sinfulness going on, and, 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 and they, they're having problems with zeal and confidence. There, there's also false teaching making inroads into some of these churches, so they're also having a crisis of confidence because of false teaching that's making inroads. And so the Apostle John writes this letter to these churches uh, to really focus on three things. As I mentioned, he wants to increase their zeal. He wants them to be excited about their salvation, joyful in the reality that they have been redeemed and washed in the blood of the Lamb. He wants, he wants their zeal to overflow. Secondly, he, he wants them to stand firm against false teachers. He wants them to have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants them to have confidence in the apostolic doctrine that they had received, and that he, he wants them to have so much confidence in it that they are able to thwart the false teachers that are trying to make inroads. And some people believe that this was like a, a something called proto-gnosticism. This 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 view that you know that that the flesh is evil and all that matters is the spirit. And so within like proto-gnosticism, you had some groups saying, Oh, it doesn't matter how you live, because what you do in your flesh doesn't matter. God doesn't care about your flesh, right? So you can just kind of drink and be merry and do all types of horrible, sinful deeds, because you're just doing it in your flesh. So that was one aspect of proto-Gnosticism. Another aspect was what's called like extreme asceticism. All right, well, well, because the spirit is the most important thing, we need to go off and be monks and live in monasteries and not associate with the world to keep our spirit pure. And so this was this was happening in a, in, a, in a small way to some of these churches, this proto-Gnosticism that was kind of making inroads. And so John is, number two, writing to help these churches avoid this false doctrine making inroads into the community. And number three, he wants to reassure these Christians of their eternal life. He doesn't want them to live in doubt and condemnation. He doesn't want them to question their soul's salvation because they have human struggles. We actually see this, this, this reassuring and this, this boosting of confidence in their eternal life in the previous verse. In verse 13 of, of 1 John chapter 5, this is what the Apostle John writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wants them to have something called assurance of their salvation, that they may know in spite of their frailties, in spite of their flaws, in spite of the fact that sometimes they are prone to wander, they can know that if they are saved, they are saved graciously they are saved eternally and that's good news like we need to pause right here and we need to understand that the same assurance 
The Apostle John was trying to press into their minds in the first century. We need to press into our minds in the 21st century. If you are truly saved, if you have truly made a credible profession of faith and you've trusted in Christ alone, you have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You are saved. Settle the issue. I don't care if you still have wandering thoughts and wandering eyes. I don't care if you're not perfect and your life doesn't cross every T and dot every I. The reality is, is if you are truly in Christ, you are in Christ for eternity. You're saved. You can know that you have eternal life. Well, some people push back and say, well, pastor, does that mean that I can just say a few words, Jesus is Lord and I believe him, and I can just continue to live however I want to live, and I can just continue to just do whatever I want to do and just kind of, you know, approach life with reckless abandon and just be just licentious and immoral and all sorts of things? I would say that if you have that attitude, the question is, have you really made a credible profession of faith and do you really trust Christ? If you honestly see and savor Jesus as the one that redeemed you, gave you his righteousness in exchange for your sinfulness, if you really see him as the one that broke the sway of sin and Satan over your life, if you really see him as the one that has reconciled you to his Father, given you glorious eternal life, allowed you to live in fellowship with the Trinity, if you really see him in this way, there will be an inevitable change in your life. You won't be perfect. The goal is never to be sinless, but you will sin less. Because you have, by the power of God, been made a new creation. I'm not talking to those of you that, that feel like, oh, I'm saved so I can do whatever I want to do and live however I want to live and talk however I want to talk. No, I'm talking to those of you that have truly had an encounter with Jesus. You've given your life to him, but yet you still struggle with your humanity. And you still deal with the reality that you stumble. Good news, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can know and be confident that you have eternal life because you're, you didn't achieve your own salvation. If you're saved, it's because God saved you. And, be, and, and he, the, he doesn't revoke the salvation that he grants. So this same confidence that John was trying to press into the minds of his hearers we need to press into our own minds, and we need to also understand that there's a movement in the text where, where, where the Apostle John lets us know that we can take this same confidence and assurance that we have in our salvation, we can take that into prayer. He says, and this is the confidence in verse 14, and forgive me if you hear me crack, I'm not going through puberty, I'm 42 years old, okay? I'm cracking because I just preached before this. And, you know, a little bit about the black church tradition, uh, we get loud. <laughs> so my voice suffers sometimes. So again, in verse 14, the Apostle John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
So, so remember verse 13, John is trying to solidify this reality in their minds that, that they have the assurance of eternal life. And so then John is saying, with that confidence that you have in your eternal life, take this confidence into prayer. And know, the text says, that if you ask anything, here's the caveat though, according to his will. Oh, his will, his desires, his intentions, his plans, his decrees. There is this aspect of the will of God that is hidden. There is this aspect of the will of God that is unknowable. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But then it goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So, so there's this aspect of God's will that is hidden, that is unknowable, that is secret, and it's, it's, it's only known within the confines of the Trinity. We can't, we, can't, we can't ask anything according to that will because that will is hidden from us. Listen, um, for those of you guys that are like intent upon knowing everything and you have to know and you just need, listen, listen, you're going to have to relinquish that that drive to know everything. I've got to know, God, I've got to know where will I live when I'm 32? Will I have 2.5 kids? What will my house look like? What car will I drive? Will I be a lawyer? Will I be, I have to know. There are some things that you will not know and you will never know. So there is this aspect of his hidden will. But then as, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 suggests, there's this, this will that's been revealed. This will that is readily accessible. This will that he has divulged to all of us that we can see, that we can access, that we can understand and ascertain with our own human minds. If we come to him, in prayer, in agreement with, and according to this revealed will, he hears us. Well, Pastor Isaiah, where is this will revealed? I'm glad you asked. This will is not revealed on television. I am going to watch Oprah to find out God's will. No. This will is not revealed by your circle of friends. I'm going to ask Tommy. I'm going to ask Pam. I'm going to ask Bruce to tell me, and then God's going to speak through them, and I'm going to know his will. This will is found in his word. He has given us graciously his word. His word is his self-disclosure to us about his revealed intentions and desires and passions, and frustrations. And so here's the connection. If you're not in his word, it's going to be hard to pray and understand his will. If you're not 
partaking of, having a steady diet of the Word of God, when it comes time to pray, what, what, what will come up will most likely be your will. And God is not obligated to bend or bow to your will. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the one who shed his blood for our sin and redemption when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours away from his moment of passion and pain, he got before his Father and he said, take this cup away from me, agonizing over the brutality that he was going to experience that was to come. But then our Lord and Savior pauses and models what the Apostle John is saying to us here. And in the midst of his agony and in the midst of him wrestling with this reality that he will be crucified for the sins of humanity, after he says, Father, take this cup, he pauses and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And here's the beautiful promise in this text. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. Let me give you, let me give you an example. If my daughter comes to me and asks me for some ice cream, I may or may not grant that. Depends on how I'm feeling that day and how her behavior was. If she's already juiced up on sugar, she cannot have it unless I'm leaving and her mom has to take over. <laughs> then, have at it. But if she comes up to me and says, Dad, I really need like 30 minutes to just focus on cleaning my room. <laughs> I am going to say, absolutely. Whatever you need to accomplish this, my child, I will grant. And so there are some things that we know that God wants and desires because of his word. He know, we know, according to 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins and ask him to forgive us of our sins, he'll cleanse us of our sins. And he'll wash us clean. We know that if we ask him, Lord, uh, help me to love somebody who's really unlovable, like somebody that really deserves my wrath. Help me to love. We know that that's, that's God's will, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Lord, grant me the ability to minister and to help and assist those that are marginalized and oppressed and on the bottom of the socioeconomic totem pole. What do we know according to Matthew 25? As you do these things to the least of these, Jesus says, you've done it unto me. You saw somebody that was hungry and you fed them. You saw somebody that was naked. You clothed them. You saw somebody that was in prison. You visited them. It is God's will that as you do those things, you do those unto him. So, Lord, put me in a position. Help me to minister and, and assist those that are marginalized, oppressed on the bottom of the socioeconomic totem pole. Man, the Lord says, now we're talking. 
And there's something curious that the the Apostle John says that we kind of have to grapple with. He says, if we do this, if we ask anything according to his will, he, the God of the universe, hears us. So now we have to pause. And we have to grapple with this. Because this is, this is, this is, this is interesting. So, a couple of things. This seems to imply that there are prayers that he doesn't hear. It, 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 the, the parallel seems to be if we, are ask, if we ask something that's not according to his will, then he will not hear us. That's sort of a logical leap to take, logical implication of the text. And so, and so we have to kind of confront that because this, this, this grates against the way sort of that the culture envisions God. Because the, the, the culture envisions God as this being as just like, like, like eavesdropping in every conversation and eagerly listening to every single human being's prayers, whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or, an, or uh, I was going to say an atheist, but I don't think an atheist would be praying too much. Um, you know, like the, 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 the cultural notion is God hears everybody's prayers. You don't have to say Jesus' name. You don't have to come, to come to the Father through Christ. You don't even have to believe in the Father. You can believe that God is a llama. And he will hear your prayer. And so we have to, we have to, we have to grapple with this cultural idea because the question that we have to ask is, well, does this mean that God doesn't hear everyone's prayers? And then we have to stop and, and, and say, wait a minute. Is this even an accurate depiction of God? A God that, so does God, the God of the universe, have ears? Like, I thought he was a spirit. Didn't it say somewhere in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth? So now, like, God has these two appendages and he has a head and like a human being, I can envision him like like at my door when I'm praying and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. So, so let's clean up the latter first. Throughout Scripture, you will see God described, big word, and I'm going to explain it. Some of you guys already know it, anthropomorphically. This is, this is, this is using human-like characteristics and ascribing these human-like characteristics to God, not because he is a human, but because in doing this, it becomes easier for us to understand and comprehend the God of the universe because it, it's, a, it's a condescending in language to allow us to, to, to enter into some type of conceptualization of the, the God who is beyond comprehension. And so you will hear God described as having arms and eyes. And there are even some places where he's described as having wings and things of that nature. It's not because he literally has arms and eyes and wings. He's described this way so that we, finite, limited human beings that at best use about 10% of our brains, can understand as best as we can this God. So when we see this language, he hears us. We're not to... We're not to Think of it literally as a God with ears that's eavesdropping and going like this. 
it's, it's painting a picture of a God that has positive regard for prayers that are offered in this way. Positive regard. Versus, versus a God who's omniscient, so we're all, as his creatures, in the immediate presence of God, yet, yet there are some prayers rendered and offered that he doesn't express the same regard for. Let me give you an example. Isaiah 1.15 says this, and I'm going I'm to be done in just a second. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Israel, wicked, walking in wickedness and unrighteousness. They were being oppressive and, and, and just wayward in, in sin and rebellion. And the text says he will not listen and he will hide his eyes from them because their hands are full of blood. This is literally the God of the universe saying you're praying, but I don't have favorable regard for those prayers. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the loss, like, I don't care what God has to say. I don't care what God, I don't care that God has claim over my life. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. Like, I'm, 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 I'm God, and I make the rules, and I make, I'm a law unto myself. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That's Proverbs 28.9. So, 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 it's not that God has these appendages. It's that, it's that there are prayers that God has favorable regard for, and there are prayers that God does not look upon favorably. And in the instance of coming to him and asking things according to his will, he inclines, condescends, he, he shows favorable attention to prayers that are offered in that way. The text goes on to say in verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. Now, don't disconnect the context. Because you see that word whatever there, and it's easy to say, well, whatever means whatever. But don't disconnect the context. Again, according to his will. So the whatever is, is surrounded by according to his will, right? If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. There is assurance this morning. Not just in our salvation. That's, that's, that's enough for us to shout and get excited over. Like I said, I, 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 I come from the black church tradition. Right, we, we, we do, we do backflips and somersaults. And it doesn't take much. I'm safe for real? Oh, okay, I'm about to cut a rug. This rug actually here would, would, would have holes in it, okay? That's enough to give God glory and praise. But there's this reality that there's, there's assurance of salvation, but there's also assurance that as you petition God according to his will, it's done. You'll have it. He'll grant it. The beautiful thing about God is that his promises are yea and amen. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me explain what that means. 
His promises are not like promises humans extend. Somebody may promise you something, and and some of you guys are familiar with this, you've experienced people breaking their promises. And when you experience somebody breaking their promise, the first thing that you say to them is, but you promised. Implied in that is you should keep your word and honor what you have said. Well, God's promises transcends any human promise that you've ever received. When he promises that he will do something, that he will grant something, when he promises that he will incline or condescend or extend, then the promise is something that you can take to the bank. You can go to sleep and rest assured that it will come to pass, here's a caveat, in his time. That's according to the will part, right? In his time. But the reality is, it's, 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 it's done. So you go to him in prayer. Lord, give me the ability to endure hardness as a good soldier. That's according to his will. The Apostle Paul wrote that in First or Second Timothy. Give me the ability to endure hardness as a good soldier. Help me to maintain my witness for you as I, as I, as I live my life on a daily basis. Well, there's a promise for that. Romans 8.28 says we know that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So even before things get better, even before things feel better, after you go to him in prayer and pray his will, the next Step is to just shout and praise him because he's already said it's working for your good. It will work for your good. There are promises. He who began a good work in you. Go, go when you go to him and pray, Lord, uh, conform me to your image. Make me more like you. Make me more. I want to be more like you. After you pray, Shout and give him praise, because if he began a promise, if he began a work in you, then he is going to fulfill, complete, perform that work. He's not going to start something in your life only to pull out and renege on you halfway through the process. It may not happen on your timetable, but what John says in verse 15 lets us know that we can pray about it, set it, and forget it. You guys, some of you guys know that infomercial, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is good news. Because we serve a God. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to pray his will. We serve a God who has all power. Which means his will can be challenged. His will can be combated, but his will cannot be thwarted. And so pray it. Believe it. Receive it. And just like the Israelites, when they were at the wall of Jericho in the book of Joshua, 
They got to that wall. They understood and perceived that the promise was there's a promised land to get to, and this wall is an impediment. But they understood the promise was the promised land. And so when they got to the wall, they didn't cry. They didn't turn back. They didn't pout and say, oh, my gosh, there's a wall, so I guess the promise isn't going to happen. Guess what they did? They started shouting. They started shouting with this wall in their face. They shouted and they shouted and they shouted. And guess what happened? In the process of shouting, that wall came tumbling down. And the wall had to come tumbling down because God made a promise that in spite of any wall, in spite of any obstacle, in spite of any hardship, in spite of any, any predicament, if the promise is made, they will get to where they're called to go. And I want to tell you guys this morning that if, if God has extended a promise to you, and there are multiple promises in his word, stained in his blood, there's no devil there's no obstacle, there's no hardship, there's no crisis, trial, issue that can keep you away from what God promised you. So stop bellyaching over the obstacles and learn how to shout and praise God because the promise may not have been fulfilled yet, but it's going to happen. And so you live life trusting. Because you've asked everything according to his will. Will you pray with me? Lord, our hearts are overjoyed this morning. Because we've just seen a promise in your word. That reminds us that when we come to you in prayer and we pray your will back to you, you regard that prayer with favor and you grant that which we pray for. It's, it's, it's so simplistic that it seems complex. But it's not. And, and we're overjoyed this morning because this is yet another gift, yet another sign of grace you have extended to us for the purpose of navigating this very rough life on earth. This is yet another olive branch of your mercy and grace that you have given us to endure the uncertainties of life. Firstly, thank you for your will. Thank you for your self-disclosure in your word. Thank you for, for choosing sovereignly to give us your word, the Bible, so that we can know you as best we can, so that we can understand the things you like, the things you don't like, the things you desire, your intentions, your plans. God, give us a hunger for your word, a passion for your word that, that, that bubbles up and overflows. And help us, God, to hide your word in our heart so that we can effectively pray your word, pray your will back to you. And as we do that, we know that it's already done. It's, 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 it is a foregone conclusion. Your promises 
our yes and amen. You're such a good God. You're such a good God. I also want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to stand before this great community here at the Commons. Lord, I pray that all that I've shared, Lord, will continue to resonate. That we, Father, as a community, would meditate upon these words day and night. That we will be doers of your word and not just hearers. Bless this community, God. Lord, I pray that, that, that they would grow in grace and righteousness and favor with God and man. So we honor you today and every day. In the mighty, matchless, and majestic name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen.